Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who played in the major leagues for 10 years for the Los Angeles Dodgers, California Angels, New York Mets, Seattle Mariners. After his playing career, he became one of the most colorful managers in baseball during the last decade of the 20th century, managing the Texas Rangers, New York Mets, Boston Red Sox, and major leagues, as well as in the Nippon Base Professional Baseball League. He's always been candid and outspoken through his career. He's teamed up with a good friend of ours, baseball author Peter Golenbach, to give us a riveting new book. Looking back on his 40 years of baseball, it leaves no great story untold. It is a pleasure to welcome back to our show one of our favorite guests, the one and only Bobby Valentine, Bobby V, the Sports Talk New York. The only regret that I have today, Bobby, when that you're coming on is that I didn't get to introduce you as mayor-elect, but... It's still always great having you on. So uh, thanks for being on with us tonight. How you doing? Great, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, I uh, did six months of giving my life to uh, that routine of running for mayor, and it was quite the experience. Fell a couple hundred votes short, but sure did get an experience. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. I mean, Sh- yeah. shaking, shaking babies and kissing <laughs> kissing hands, right? It's funny. Yeah, we, something we, like that. Yeah, yeah. We were watching it from afar in New York, and it's like the, the one time that I really cared about you know, any election in Connecticut. But So tell us how – I mean, Peter Golenbach is a, a great friend of the show. How, tell us how this collaboration with Peter came about. And how did you and Peter work to get all these stories put together in this amazing book? Well, thanks. Yeah, Valentine's Way was Peter's idea. He gave me a call one day. And he's from Stanford, Connecticut, lived in New Canaan, Connecticut also. Now he lives down in Florida. You know, he's written many a great uh, sports book and a very good author. And I just picked up the phone and he said, hey, by the way, you have any time? I said, very little. He said, how about... Uh, a couple hours a week for the next uh, 30 weeks. And I said, I think we could do something like that. And uh, before you knew it, we had a book. Uh, it was published. And um, I think he did a really good job on it. You know, Peter always does great work. And the beauty of this book is, you know, no matter how many times we've had you on the show, no matter how many times you do research on, on a subject, it's books like this that you really learn about the people who shaped the, the individual. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact that John Sharkey, um, Loreno, Al Judge, and Stash Borowski had on you and what you learned from them? Oh, good for you. Yeah, in my childhood here in Stanford, Connecticut, you know, I, I got to play in Little League and Babe Ruth League and the American Legion. And, um, you know, at the time, back in the 60s, um, baseball was kind of the uh, – Stanford is kind of the baseball capital of uh, New England, if not the world. We had the first Little League World Series champion. We had the first Babe Ruth League champion. You know, our teams traveled all across the country. And and it was quite um, quite the situation. This is John Sharkey Lorino, uh, who was a mailman by trade and a coach by, by uh, night, uh, was uh, one of the most spectacular guys uh, 
round, he took teams to Texas and California and Maine and all across the country. And I was lucky enough to play on a couple of his all-star teams. Stav Borowski was uh, my Babe Ruth League coach who coached the holy name Babe Ruth League team in Stanford, Connecticut. And interestingly enough, my brother wound up marrying his daughter. And, uh, uh, you know, the with the judge and, and other great coaches in the area, I just found out about baseball at an early age. I learned the fundamentals. I understood, you know, how to tag up properly, what a delayed steal was, how to squeeze, how to read the rule book and understand the rules so that when you're playing, if there's ever a question, you would know what's going on. And uh, they really cared about me and cared about others. And, uh, you know, that was one of the lucky things that happened to me in my life. Uh, ironic, too, that he was a mailman. Because one of the great stories in the book that you talk about is, you know, you signing your first contract in your mailman's uniform. But um, you talk about your time in the Cape Cod League. And, and it, it's so obvious within, like, the first 10 pages of this book that Bobby Valentine is out out Kevin Bacon's Kevin Bacon. Because there's a connection to everyone in the world to Bobby Valentine including your, your Cape Cod manager, who, believe it or not, right before we got off, went on air, I just got off a, a Zoom conference call with him for the New York Islanders. So can you tell our audience who your Cape Cod manager was? And additionally, a story about a, a Cape Cod catcher that here in the New York area we might know a little bit about that, that you tell a great story in the book about. Yeah, well, uh, I was playing high school baseball here in Stanford, and um, this aforementioned coach was the assistant hockey coach and assistant baseball coach at Providence College. The assistant basketball coach uh, at Providence College was from Stanford, Connecticut. And um, the two coaches decided to have dinner together in Stanford. And then they stayed over to watch a baseball game. And in that baseball game, I had one of those days where I ran around the base a lot and made some defensive plays and and uh, hit the ball pretty far and after the game uh Lou Lamorello um, came over to me and said hey son are your parents here I'd like to talk to them and I said sure uh and I introduced this stranger to my mom and dad who introduced himself to my mom and dad as the assistant baseball coach at Providence College who at 24 years old was going to be the Yarmouth uh, baseball coach in the Cape Cod League. And uh, while he's talking to my mom and dad, he said that he'd like to have this high school player that I was, a junior in high school at the time, come up and play in the Cape Cod League for him and that he would take care of him and that he understood getting being away from home was a real challenge and that uh, he'd give every bit of loving care that anyone could give to make sure that I was uh, uh, doing the right thing at the right time. And sure enough, my parents who really, you know, had no idea where Providence College was, where Cape Cod was, what the Cape Cod Baseball League was. But after talking to the who's who in town, including Ron Ferenti, my high school coach, and Sharky Larino, that base, that um, um, Babe Ruth League baseball coach, and friend of the family, um, everyone decided it would be a good thing for me to do. So I went to Cape Cod and I played and I 
and I hit like 296 leading off for the Yarmouth Indians that's that summer. And a lot of professional scouts saw me. And uh, the reason they saw me is they were scouting a lot of other people, including the guy who was the number one draft choice for the Yankees the next year after he gra- uh, graduated from Kent State University. Uh, Thurman Munson was uh, the catcher in Chatham. And um, I was the center fielder in Yarmouth, and we got to play against each other. And he was the number four pick in the draft, and I was the number five pick in the draft. The Yankees took him, the Dodgers took me, which is really amazing because I think I I know that I would have rather had had the Yankees take me. And, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, because I grew up a Yankee fan uh, my whole life. So, yeah, he was there. And a matter of fact, he was the talkative guy. Everyone knows about Thurman talking all the time. And, um, you know, he was talking the first at-bat that I had in that league. And I was uh, standing beside the box, kind of timing the pitcher. And the first thing he did is said, son, we don't do that in this league because that big guy out on the mound will uh, stick one into your ear if you do that. So I said, yes, sir, thank you very much. And then he complimented me on a play that I made. And then he predicted what he was going to do next. And I think you have to read the book to find out what that was. <laughs> awesome. So, you know, some of the early Dodger stuff in the book w- was just amazing. And you add in the fact that you're only 21 years old at the time, that first year, um, full year. And you mentioned some of the influences that, that, you know, not, I wouldn't say not only shaped your baseball, but kind of shaped the way you looked at things. And, and the two that stood out to me were Dick Allen and Willie Davis. Can you share what those two meant to your evolution as a person more so than your playing career? Oh, Richie Allen uh, and and Willie Davis were, uh, you know, two of the stars on the team, and they kind of took me under their wings. Um, Richie called me little bro, and uh, Willie and I kind of um, hung around together a little because, um, you know, we were the two fastest guys on the team. And I think if – Actually, I think if Richie ever raced with us, uh, it would be neck and neck, uh, the three of us. But, you know, Willie was called the three dog and I was called the two dog because I wore number two and he wore number three. And um, when when Richie came in 71, that, that first year, came to the Dodgers, um, you know, he's a little different than most other people uh, on the Dodgers. And I guess I was too. And. So we we kind of hung out together and and, um, you know, I got to to see for the first time because Stanford, Connecticut was probably as diverse a city as there was in New England at the time. My, you know, my fifth grade class and sixth grade class had 40 uh, percent of the guys and gals in the class didn't look like me. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know what really was going on other than, you know, the crazy protests that were happening in 69, 68 and 69 when I was out in LA and I was trying to figure out how to straighten out the world. When it, well, when I got with Richie, uh, he started telling me some of the stories of his minor league escapades and about the things that were thrown at him and said to him and Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, I guess um, I guess we just became kind of Kim and uh, yeah, they 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 were good guys who who, like I said, took me under their wing and and I'm, I'm happy that I I was friends of theirs. 
You know, there's an interesting story that you tell about how when you were playing for Spokane and you were being during a playoff game in Hawaii, you ended up being treated by a fan, a visiting Japanese plastic surgeon. Can you share some of that with our listeners and how 37 years later, you'll learn why the doctor didn't stay around for you to thank him? <laughs> well, it's amazing that, uh, yeah, after playing every inning of every game in AAA and leading the league and hitting in seven different categories so offensively, uh, I was being on the first pitch of the last game of the playoffs. We were playing in Hawaii. And, uh, you know, at those, those times, there were no flaps. And this 90-plus-mile-hour uh, fastball kind of tailed in. And I went back. Instead of turning away, <clears throat> I kind of moved moved back. And the ball just followed me. It hit my cheekbone and pushed it down three and a half inches. And uh, before I knew it, I was in the uh, Oahu um, emergency room. Uh, in downtown uh, Waikiki, and um, someone was going to operate on my on my face. And interestingly enough, um, two people jumped out of the stands and walked with me off the field. And when I say walked with me off the field, uh, there was a lot of blood, and my face was sunken in. But I was the tough guy, and I didn't want the stretcher. So I told everyone, I said, "I'm going to walk off the field." And um, there were fights breaking out over at third base and, and Tommy Pachorik was chasing the pitcher out into center field and Lasorda was yelling at Chuck Tanner. And I mean, it, it was a crazy scene that uh, I walked through to get out to center field where our clubhouse was. And when I got there, there was an ambulance and I got in the ambulance with one guy who is the father of my best friend, Zach Manassian, uh, Eddie Manassian. Uh, was Tommy Lasorda's very good friend back in the day. And uh, Zach Manassian is the father of Perry Manassian, who's the general manager of uh, the California or the LA Angels, and also the father of um, Zach Manassian Jr., the vice president of the San Francisco Giants, interestingly enough. But anyway, there. <laughs> Their grandfather, uh, or Zach's father, and Zach was my very good friend who was the clubhouse uh, boy when I first got to Ogden, Utah. Uh, Zach's dad and this other fellow walked me to the uh, ambulance and got into the ambulance and went to the hospital. And um, it turned out the guy that walked with us was a um, renowned plastic surgeon. And he was a Dodger fan, and he was in the stands to watch the Dodgers AAA team play in the playoffs. And um, when he got to the hospital, I guess his credential uh, was wired back to L.A., and uh, Dr. Bob Curlin, who is the um, father of orthopedic surgeon surgery and also the Dodgers uh, doctor at the time, recognized uh, the name uh, of this plastic surgeon and gave the okay to the hospital to allow him to work on this Dodger player who is in the emergency room. And he did a wonderful job. Uh, normally, they would just um, open up your face in those days. A lot of guys got beaten in those days, and you'd, you'd cut along your cheek, and then you'd open it up and you'd fix the cheekbone or whatever had to be fixed and then you'd sew up the 
the inc the incision and uh, it would leave you as a Scarface. I remember Jimmy Davenport, if anybody remembers him, yep. uh, had an amazing scar in his face and Tony C had a, oh. a scar up high on his face. And anyway, this doctor happened to shave my head and then he cut my skull open and went down with like, like a stainless steel miniature crowbar and pulled it up and put my cheekbone in place and then uh, cut me a little along a crease underneath my eye to take make sure there were no bone chips that might be floating around. And uh, I laid in the hospital for another 10 days with my head all bandaged up, wrapped up like a mummy, waiting to see uh, 10 days later when they would unwrap the wrapping uh, to see if I would be able to see okay. But anyway, this doctor showed up, did the operation and left. I never met him when I was conscious. And uh, I found out his name. He was a Japanese uh, surgeon. Uh, and I spent many a year in Japan. And uh, I always mentioned his name and told the story. And he never came forward and I never got to meet him. And then finally, about 36 or seven years later, when I was managing there, my interpreter during batting practice came over to me and said there was somebody who wanted to meet me under the stands. And I went under the stands back by our clubhouse, and there was a guy in a suit, a Japanese fellow standing there. He gave me his business card. It said Dr. Nakamura, and it said that he was a plastic surgeon, but he was younger than I was, so I knew this couldn't be the guy. So I said, what is this? Who are you? He says, I'm the son of the surgeon who's operated on you. And I said, well, why didn't I ever meet your dad? Can I meet him, please? He says, no, he died last year. And I said, well, why, if you know, didn't I ever meet him? And he said, well, he was in L.A. for the convention, and my mom didn't know that he spent the three days in Hawaii on the way back uh, to Japan. So I guess uh, it's a ha-ha situation. I don't know what he was doing other than watching. <laughs> but I would have liked that better. Yeah, in reading that, and, and and another part that's you know again like that Kevin Bacon right. moment, you know, which you know, and the readers have to get this because the the one of the reasons why Bobby also got you know leaned um, in that game was because of a batting um, title race, and the announcer right. of the the Wahoos team was well, Al yeah, Michaels. Michaels. Another, yeah. but like it, this book is like almost like a curb your enthusiasm because everything just comes around. Um, <laughs> your admiration for for Tommy comes through so strongly in the book. And I have to imagine trying to pare down. I'm sure there could have just been a book about you and Tommy that would fill 300 pages. But the the unbelievable thing is you never get the opportunity to play for Tommy as a Dodger as you get traded to the Angels. You touch on it briefly by stating you could have been a Dodger for the next 20 years. Which do you regret more, that you weren't a Dodger or the fact that you never got to, to play a major league game for Tommy? Yeah, I wish I could have played for time in the major leagues um, for any team. But, you know, in particular for the Dodgers, you know, if they, you know, I, I was crazy and, and wild. You know, after I got beamed, I decided I was going to play in a flag football game. The flag football game in college turned out to be basically the end of my career because I got clipped. And instead of being the starting shortstop the next year, for the Dodgers, I was a uh, starting right fielder part-time because I wore a big brace and wasn't able to run and have the ability that I once had. So 
Um, yeah, Tommy got there right after I got traded. And uh, the only time we were in a Major League Baseball uniform together was when I got to manage the uh, 2001 All-Star Game. I got the commissioner to give special permission to allow me to have a extra coach. And I had Tommy in uniform with me uh, for that game. At which point he almost gave you a heart attack with like right, Guerrero right. at bat. Um, so, you know, there, there's one Tommy Lasorda story that sort of leaves me hanging a bit. And so how he'd have all the minor, when he's managing the minor leagues, he said he'd have the players write letters to the people whose basically jobs they were going after in the major leagues. And you wrote one of those letters, and it didn't help you when you got to the, to the Dodgers and Maury Wills was supposed to mentor you, uh, you know, mentioned the letter. Did you ever ask Tommy why he had players write those letters? Oh, that was just Tommy's style. He wanted us to think that when we were in rookie ball, that we should be in the major leagues. And, uh, you know, he wanted to make sure that everyone knew about this group of guys that he had. You know, it was a sp pretty special group. Uh, as it turned out, that 1968 draft that Tommy managed many of uh, uh, in rookie ball in 1968, as it turned out, Many people say it's the best minor league team ever because cumulatively uh, there are more major league games played by the Dodgers players who were drafted in 1968 than in any other draft in history. So at the time, somehow Tommy knew that, uh, you know, for sure, King Garvey and Buckner and Valentine and Say and, and <clears throat> others were going to make their mark and um he he wanted to uh make sure that everyone was ready when we got there this you know we could act literally without question spend right. an entire you know show on each and every chapter so i'm jumping around here i mean there's Thanks, great stories about right. the fact that you know you get to work for a future president who like used the warning track at arlington stadium as his jogging path and would hang out and talk baseball with you um the met chapter absolutely the way you got hired is absolutely fascinating the obstacles that were in your way, you know, that we didn't know about, just the, the Levinsons and their clients, yeah. their preconceived notions, makes the, the 2000 trip to the World Series, you know, even more remarkable, everything that you had to overcome to, to get there. But for me, trying to tie things into modern day, the Boston Red Sox chapter to me was both amazing and scary because it really shows that no matter how good a manager you bring in, if there's already an ingrained culture that's allowed to stay there, there's nothing you can do to change it. So it actually made me think about what lies ahead for Billy Epler. As media, we have not been in the Mets clubhouse for two years, so we have no clue as to what the climate in that locker room is. Um, so how important will it be for Billy Epler to have almost complete trust in his manager to accept his input? Obviously, you didn't have that with Phillips, but let's say a manager says, Listen, I know the analytics says this guy is a great player for us, but he's a clubhouse cancer. You know, is it important for the next manager of the Mets to be a guy with a proven track record, like like a Bobby Valentine or a Buck Showalter, who that GM can trust? Well, I, I think that the idea that Billy needs to form a team with his manager is very important. Uh, I'm not sure how much how important all that uh, experience is, unless it's 
a good experience, unless it's experience, uh, you know, with a team similar to this team or, you know, some way that uh, the experience can relate. Um, I I, I just wouldn't say that that's the biggest uh, point. I think the biggest point is that Steve Cohen, who is is the owner, uh, needs to have his attitude filter down through the general manager, through the manager, to the players and to the to minor leagues, because I think he has the right attitude. Um, and I and I just think that you know Billy Epler kind of gets uh, that because working uh, with Steinbrenner and then with Ashman and then himself through the managers that he saw with the Yankees. Uh, he understands how it's how important that attitude uh, filtration system is. Obviously, it's established in in California, um, but I think you know that experience is what's important. Uh, the experience that Billy has had, and hopefully he can learn from the experience he had, uh, because I think he's a good guy. Uh, he lived in Stanford, Connecticut. You know when he. Uh, was with the Yankees. So I got to know him. And, and I think that, um, you know, his, he's made of the right stuff. All he has to do now is get the right people around him. And um, I, I think he'll be able to do that. But once again, just thinking that you, if you can turn it over to someone who's going to be that manager who, you know, tries to control every situation that there is, uh, I don't think that that kind of experience is what's necessary. You need someone who's adaptable, someone who's adjustable, someone who has experience, but can make sure that today's world is part of the team that he's managing because it's a different world right now than even last year or two years ago before COVID. It, the world has changed. Well, if you are on Billy's short list, I pray that Sandy Alderson doesn't read the book before you get an right. interview. But Bobby, thanks so much for your time tonight. I, I Every baseball fan needs to get this book. Where's the best place for them to get it? It's a great gift for uh, you know the baseball fan in your family. Tell them where's the best place to get it. Oh, you guys are great. Yeah, uh, Amazon's the easiest place. You know, it's... Uh... It's out there. It's easy. It has delivery dates uh, early December, so you'd be able to get it by Christmas. And um, I think it is a pretty good read. Oh. So I appreciate you guys taking the time and letting me be on the show to talk about it. Uh, you know, we always love having you <laughs> and on. It's, it's a really good it's read. It's a really great book. I, I mean, it, you know, when you team Bobby Valentine up with you know Peter Goldenbach, you you're going to get gold. And this, you know, I mean, the, the stuff with Frank, right? Everything, every single. Yeah. Time I said. Whoa! It's like it's like it was amazing. Well, uh, explaining what happened with the the glasses and hat and yeah. the mustache, everything, the nine eleven mm-hmm. stuff. No matter, yeah. listen, no matter how many times at Met Fantasy Camp, the guys talk about you and, and what you meant to them. You know that chapter was it riveting, and even you know I had the opportunity to speak to you that the day when they did the zooms and everything. But um, just a riveting chapter. So everything about it. Like I said, the only regret tonight was not being able to say you know mayor elect. But Bobby, as always, thanks so much for your time. Anytime, anything. Thanks, guys. You got it. The great, the great. All right. You got it. The great Bobby Valentine. Great new book, Valentine's Way. Pick it up on Amazon.